us either. I think God's going to pour out His Spirit on us as we hear the word preached, and together we're going to find ourselves experiencing God and experiencing transformation and being shaped and formed in the most beautiful ways. Exciting. Uh, next week, by the way, Luke Harper is going to be joining us. Super exciting from South Penn. Uh, what a treat. Uh, we're actually swapping. I'm going to be going over to South Penn. He's going to be coming over here. They're a week ahead, so I'm, I'm doing James 3 with them, and he's doing James 2 right here. But I know you guys love Luke and love his voice, so we're going to try to get him into our space a little bit more regularly. And they've also, they're tired of him, so they asked me to come there a little bit as well. <laughs> But that's next week. Today I get to, to, to kind of introduce the series as well as kick us off looking at the first four verses. So by way of introducing the book and kind of helping you understand who's who and why the book is written, let's just look at verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So who is James. There's a few people around at the time that this book was written that were called James. But the, the great consensus is that this is James, Jesus' half-brother. You, you pick up a bit of the humility in James, you know, as he writes like, you know, James, uh, servant of God and the Lord Jesus. He could say like, James, servant of God, brother of Jesus Christ. But he, God's been at work in his life and he's, he's got this humility. By the way, some trivia for you. Uh, the, the, the names James and Jacob actually stem from the same Greek word. So sometimes you might hear people speak about Jacob as the author of the book. So, you know, James is Jacob is James. So a little bit of trivia for you to surprise someone one day when they least expectant. If you think about it, the fact that James is Jesus' half-brother is actually quite a big thing. I mean, the fact that Jesus' own siblings... His brothers and sisters throughout his life and after his resurrection, that they actually came to see him as, as the son of God, as God in human flesh, is a big deal. I mean, there's, my sister is under no illusion that I am God. I mean, she knows me. She knows my life. It seems like after the resurrection, Jesus revealed himself to his family in a significant way. I mean, Acts 1, 14, you read that, you know, all the believers, they joined together along with the woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And what's more is that the Bible, Christian tradition tells us that he was martyred in AD 62, that one day the Jews kind of hauled him out of the temple and they beat him to death with clubs because they hated his testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't stand him glorifying God and, and explaining all that God had done to him. It's also significant because when you look at, at the authenticity of Jesus, the historicity of Jesus, evidence for his resurrection, this is a big deal. I mean, Jesus' own family worshipped him as and were willing to because of that testimony. I mean, you know, you might be willing to lie or, or carry on a hoax or carry on a big story, but would you be willing to die for it? His siblings must have truly believed with all their hearts and minds that Jesus really was God to the extent that they would be willing to die. So James knew Jesus. He had followed Jesus around. He knew a lot of Jesus' teachings, which really helps us understand the book of James. Another thing about James is along with Peter and John, they're described in Galatians 2 as pillars in the church. 
So James actually was potentially the, like the congregational leader or a, or a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. So this very big, significant church in the, in, in the early days of the church. And actually, he's mentioned quite a few times throughout Scripture. You'll pick up James and his, and his impact as this leader. So James knew Jesus. He knew the teachings. He knew all about church life. I mean, he knew, he knew what it was figure out what it looked like to follow Jesus in a local church filled with different people from different circumstances, different life areas, and he really had a real heart for people. So that's James. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to these 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who are these guys? Well, he's, he's not referring to the historical 12 tribes of Israel, because we know that those 12 tribes no longer exist as tribes or as a nation. In the 720s uh, before Christ, the 10 tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, were deported to Syria, and they never, really, they never really came back and identified again as the 12 tribes or those 10 tribes as Israelites, as the nation of Israel. So, so we don't think he's talking to, you know, the 12 tribes as we understand them through the Old Testament. Then also in James 2 verse 1, you pick up these words. He says, my brothers, as believers in our, so he's writing to brothers. He's writing to brothers and sisters, to fellow believers. So Michael Eaton kind of brings this all together, and he says this is James' way of saying that these Jewish believers, remember the gospel first went out to the Jews. That's why the church in Jerusalem was such a key church in those early days. He's saying that these Jewish believers or future Christ followers are the new people of God. In other words, Christ followers are the new heirs of God's promise to be blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. But then he also describes them as scattered. They scattered all over the place. In Acts 8, you read these words, and Saul was there. Now we know this is this, this is became Paul who writes the Testament, but here it says, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout there and So on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So you see what is known as the Diaspora. This is when the, the Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire through this persecution that came on them. So who's he writing to? He's writing to, to Jewish believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, kind of in foreign places different cities that they were grew up to, maybe separated from the life that they had known, the rhythms that they had known. And so they're all over the place. It's a large group of people. He's writing to this large group of people in various places and facing all different kinds of spaces. And it makes sense for him to write to them because he is, you know, this key leader in the church in Jerusalem. And although, you know, all these Jewish believers are scattered, he still loves them and cares for them and, and wants to encourage them. So the question is, so why is he writing to them? 
Well, I've described it a little bit. Picture what you're seeing. I mean, these Jews are scattered all over the place. Their rhythms have been broken. Their communities have been broken. They're in foreign places. There's foreign belief systems. These guys are in trouble. These Jewish Christians, they need help as they find themselves scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. They're facing opposition from Jews. You know, the Jews would see them as, as traitors, as, as you know, uh, heretics even, blasphemers for turning away and worshiping uh, Jesus Christ. They would have also, you know, faced opposition from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who weren't really interested in this religion that was competing with Caesar. And then I said they would have been facing all these different circumstances, cultures, and trials. So you find this huge group of Christ followers that need guidance, instruction, encouragement, maybe even some correction in lots and lots of different ways. It was tough times for these early Christ followers. You know, as you read through the book, you're gonna pick up a huge array of what they were facing, both personally in their personal lives, you know, both in their experiences, also what's happening in the inner hearts, but also complications in church fellowship, in their relationship with other believers in church. So here's a, a bunch of stuff they were facing. For one thing, they were going through difficult testing. They were also facing temptation to sin. Some of the believers were catering to the rich, while others were being robbed by the rich. Church members were competing for offices in the church, particularly teaching offices. One of the major problems in the church was a failure on the part of many to live out what they professed with their mouth. Furthermore, the tongue or the way that they spoke to each other was a serious problem amongst the believers, even to the point of creating conflict and divisions in local churches. Worldliness was another problem. Some of the members were disobeying God's word and were physically sick because of it. Some were straying away from the Lord and the church, and there was discrimination that revealed a real lack of love between fellow Christ followers. So, I mean, you can see there's, there's a huge array of things that these uh, Jewish believers are facing. They're in deep trouble. And so James writes to address their attitudes and their actions. He writes to them about the practical outworking of your faith. So you profess faith in Christ. Let's talk about what that looks like every day. That's the strap line. Real faith for real life. He's not so much looking back on salvation you know, at the day someone placed their faith in Christ, neither is he looking kind of into the future and saying, you know, your ultimate salvation is coming. James is more dealing with the, your faith here and now. What it means to be saved today. What it means to trust Jesus today. What it means to follow him in your circumstances right now. Now, if you ask me what's the key verse in the book of James, I would easily go James 1 verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't want to say too much because I'm going to be covering this verse in today's message, but I want us to see from the outset that the whole book of James is all about our maturity as Christ followers. James is urging Christ followers to grow in their faith, to mature. That's why our message throughout the series, you're gonna hear these words, a maturing faith, a maturing faith. It's kind of the baseline for what we're talking about as we look at the book of James. That's what he's doing the whole time. He's encouraging, confronting, teaching, correcting everyone who's reading these words, including us, in order to urge us, in order to push us to make progress in our Christ-likeness. 
to increase our faith, to strengthen our faith. I mean, isn't that our desire? Isn't that what we want for ourselves as Christ followers, to, to become mature, to become more Christ-like, to bring glory to God as we are transformed with ever-increasing measure into His image and likeness? You know, God doesn't want you to just grow old. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to mature. He wants you to be, come to the full measure of Jesus Christ in your Christ-likeness, well-rounded, moving towards being complete or perfect, as in closer to the finished product than ever before. I mean, this is what excites me about James. If you ask me, why am I so excited to spend so much time in the book of James? Because he's calling us to maturity. He's calling us to, to um, Christ-likeness. And he's helping us do it every step of the way in real life. And so my encouragement for us is let's bring our real lives to this real God and ask him to do something magnificent in our lives. Ask him to transform us. Ask him to mature us. Are you up for it? I am. I'm excited. I've, I've been up for it this whole week as God's already got to work in my life. This first sub-series, we're doing five weeks in this little sub-series, and as Colin said, it's called A Maturing Faith Grows Through Trials. These next five weeks, we're going to look at how in, in the trials and difficulties of life, God calls us or grows us or urges us to grow through those trials. So we're going to see over the next five weeks that, that a, a maturing faith that grows through trials perseveres towards maturity, seeks wisdom from above, has an identity rooted in Christ, knows where it's vulnerable to temptation, and remembers who God is in the midst of trials. That's the next five weeks. So let me pray for us as I lean into these next three verses as you see that a maturing faith perseveres in trial. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that brings your word to, to life. And that it's not just teaching, it's, it's transformation. That you get a hold of our hearts, you get a hold of our minds, you, you inspire us, you call us beyond ourselves, beyond this world, into what's truly important. And God, we want to grow up. We want to continue to grow. We want to continue to progress in our faith. We want to move towards being complete and, and perfect and mature, more and more like Jesus Christ. And God, would you do that in us? Would you do that in us? Amen. And that's partly what these books are about. I mean, it's an opportunity for you to take notes, to write down those key thoughts. Maybe not everything I'm saying. Maybe you just want to write down the one or two things that God speaks to you about, the one or two next steps, or the, or the one big thing that you feel like God's calling you to do as you follow Him. Great for you to go into life group uh, this week with your notebook. And when the discussion starts, you know, you're not starting with a blank. You've actually got some thoughts and some things written down, and you can engage so wonderfully. So, so I'd love to see a lot of you writing, but I won't look at anyone in particular. It's just a gift to you. And yeah, who's got a pen or pencil? Do we have spare pens or pencils? Anyone at the back? We have a bunch of pencils or pens? Anyone? Anyone? Do we have any? If we don't, it's fine. We do. Okay, Okay. well, here's going to come a pen soon, soon. If you need a pen or a pencil, just stick up your hand. No shame if you don't want to write. It's just an opportunity for you. Okay, so let's get going. James 1, by the way, if you want a pen, just stick up your hand, 
and there is someone from behind. Wow, go for it, guys. Yeah, let's get those things out there. Here come pens and pencils from behind. Just keep your hand up. And every sub-series, you're going to get a new little booklet. So there'll be, there'll be, I think there's four or five sub-series altogether, five sub-series altogether. So you'll get a different booklet for each one so you can build up a nice little library. Okay, James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The big idea for this message is this. In the unpredictability and challenges of life, count it all joy because the testing of your faith will bring you to maturity. This is the big idea of what I I think God wants us to walk away from in this text. You know, one of the things you notice about James, he wastes no time. It's like one verse, how's it, guys? Verse number two, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I mean, he's just going for it. He's right in there. I mean, this is a pastor caring for his people and wanting to get in there. So the blueprint for this morning, where are we going? Firstly, I wanna look at the meaning of this phrase, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like, what does he mean by that? And then I wanna look at three verbs that James gives us in these verses that will really help us navigate the trials of our life. So here we go. First one speaks about whenever you face trials of many kinds. What are these trials of many kinds? Remember, he's writing to a broad audience in a wide array of circumstances. So he's literally writing about all kinds of trials, just what he said he is. The imagery here, the, the Greek word, the imagery is multicolored or textured. That's what it means, many kinds. There's like lots of different textures to the trials we go through. Life is, is multifaceted, multicolored. You know, we have lots of different things we experience, and it's not always the same for every person. And, you know, when we speak about trials, sometimes we think about, you know, and I'm using an example today, but sometimes we think about the worst kind of trials, you know, maybe cancer or, you know, not having long to live or real disease or sickness, but he's writing also about relational complications. You know, arguments with friends, maybe unemployment, maybe struggling to to trust God through a difficult decision that needs to be designed, or a disappointment. I mean, it's all kinds of trials. So don't think massive trials. Just think every day in your life, you are gonna face multicolored and textured kinds of trials, and that's what he's speaking to. But there's that other impression that James wants to make on us here, and it's important for us to to see this. When he speaks about facing trials of many kinds, that literally means falling into the middle of people, objects, or circumstances. So facing many trials, it's like you fall into these trials. He's not saying, hey guys, just so you know, you might experience some difficulties in your life. I mean, we all know that that's not true. We will face many trials of different kinds. And he's acknowledging that. He's saying, guys, life is full of trouble. Life is full of multicolored and textured trials of all kinds, so get used to it. 
They happen. They surround your life. They can come unexpectedly. They can come suddenly, but guaranteed they are coming. So if you're wondering if this message is for you, do you have a trial that you need to hear this for? The answer is yes, you will fall into them. Everybody falls into trials and difficulties. Think of Peter. He says, dear friends, in, in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I still get surprised or even upset or shocked when life throws you know, a curveball my way. Now, I'm learning not to. I'm learning not to anymore. But sometimes you know, I fall into believing that life should somehow be void of trouble. That actually it's not right that we face difficulties and, and all different kinds of complications. You know, life should be easier, smoother, more trouble-free. And also what happens is sometimes when we fall into these troubles or difficulties, whether it's relationships, employment, sickness, even discrimination, our lives can sometimes shrink to the point that this thing becomes almost consuming for our lives becomes such a big thing for us that, that actually, effectively, we, we kind of stop living. You know, we, we stop moving forward. We stop counting our blessings. We, blessings, we stop growing in our relationship with God. We, we kind of tell, tell ourselves, like, when I get to the other side of this thing, you know, then I'm going to pick up life again. Or when I get to the other side of this thing, then all those other areas of my life, you know, I'll, I'll get back to them right now. This, this kind of just becomes the thing that, that our whole life you know, our moods, our decisions, our joy levels are all impacted by this one area of trouble. James wants to put a stop to that tendency in our lives. He just wants to say to us, that's not how we ought to live as Christ followers. They're a part of our lives, but we need to learn to keep on living and keep on thriving even in the midst of difficulty. Now, probably one of the most powerful times God has ever spoken to me about this truth happened last year when I came across this, this America's Got Talent audition by someone called Nightbird. You may have seen this before. Real name, Jane. She's a 30-year-old lady who fought cancer for four years. And in the time of her fighting cancer, uh, her husband also left her. Now, I was a little bit wary of using, you know, this cancer picture because sometimes it takes trials, it makes us think that, that, you know, the other kind of trials we go through in life aren't meaningful. But remember, James isn't only speaking about these kind of extreme examples, but, but I just think this is so good for us. So we're going to watch a clip, it's just over five minutes, and I'll refer back to it throughout the message. So let's, let's watch that together. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we're happy you are. What's your name? My name's Jane. When I sing, I go by Nightbird. Oh, that's nice. Nightbird? That's right. Uh, did you sing, do you sing for a living? Um, not, not recently. Where are you from? I'm from Zanesville, Ohio. Okay. How old are you? I'm 30. 30 years old. And the dream is to be a singer. What are you going to be singing for us tonight? I'm singing an original song called It's Okay. It's Okay. Yeah. It is. It's okay. okay. It's okay. What is It's Okay about? Uh, it's Okay is the story of the last year of my life. All right. And who are you here with? I'm here by myself. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do for a living? Um, I have not been working for quite a few years. I've been dealing with cancer. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. All right. Can, can I ask you a question? How are you now? 
Uh, last time I checked, I had some cancer in my lungs, my spine, and my liver. Wow. So you're not okay? Uh, well, not in every way, no. You got a beautiful smile and a beautiful glow, mm -hmm. and nobody would know. Thank you. It's important that uh, everyone knows I'm so much more than the bad things that yes. happen to me. Yes. All right. Sing for us. Good luck. Nightbird. Because singers come on, and, and, I, and I think about authenticity. You know, when you feel it, when it moves you, that felt like the most authentic thing I have heard this season. That was surprising to you. It was powerful, it was heartfelt, and I think you're amazing. You gave me chills. I mean, your voice is so beautiful to listen to. It was beautiful all the way around. Your voice is stunning. Mm -hmm. It is. Absolutely stunning. And I, I totally agree with what Howie said, you know, about authenticity. 
there was something about that song after the way you just almost casually told us what you're going through and, oh, you know. You can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. might have watched that a few times. I mean, at the time when I first saw that, I mean, just incredible. I mean, a young lady with such strength, such poise, such positivity. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, where does all this come from? Where does the strength come from? I mean, those words, you can't wait till life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy, before you decide to start living. It's kind of what James is encouraging us in this text. And the time after this, you know, she became globally famous with over 200 million views of this audition. And later, as people followed her story, it became known that she was a Christ follower. Made sense to me. I was like, okay, that makes a bit more sense. Here's someone who knows the love of a heavenly father in a tremendously powerful way. And, you know, she tragically passed away in February this year. But here's a quote from her in an interview as people followed her journey. She said, I believe that God can and does heal in one instance. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that was me. And if God had pulled up all of this hardship too soon, it would have also pulled up all these miracles he did in my spirit. I mean, here's someone that understood in the most dire of trials that God was with her, that God was at work in her, that God was producing something in the field that is her. She persevered in her faith. She persevered in her trust to the end. We can see some of the tributes to her and how the gospel is so clearly communicated and how to millions and millions and millions of people this gospel message rang out through this powerful testimony, the power of God at work in someone's life. I mean, maybe you can relate to Jane. Probably most of the circumstances we're facing aren't to that same degree. I mean, there's, there's different trials. But the question for us is, how do we move forward? I mean, how as Christ followers who you know, proclaim faith in Christ, how do we endure trials and difficulties of all sorts? So three verbs in this text that's going to help us. The first one, first one is consider. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. kinds. What James wants to do is he wants to destroy this lie that all difficulties are bad. Well, that all trials or all hardships or all relational complications or all relational hurts or all strain that we go through or any kind of unemployment or any kind of setback, that they're simply bad. You know, we tend to define things as good or bad or helpful or unhelpful depending on how they make us feel, depending on how we feel the impact is on our life. And actually, that means that sometimes these trials have a disproportionate impact on our lives. They affect us more deeply than maybe they should. And I guess it kind of makes sense because we live with this inner drive for self-preservation, I mean, as people. And we live in a culture that's telling us that life 
should actually be easy, that you deserve life to be easy, that you don't deserve to experience troubles, that actually troubles should be something that you don't have to deal with. And when you live like that, live with this idea of self-preservation, live with this idea that life ought not to have any trials or difficulties, it's very, very, very hard to experience any kind of joy in a trial or a setback. There are obstacles, trials. They're, they're things to get around or get over or to get away from. They're not seen as the means of grace, a means of grace that God brings into our lives that allows to come into our lives so that we can grow in our faith. James knows we can't avoid trials and difficulties, so he gets to work helping us. And how does he do it? He calls us to action. I mean, consider, this is a verb, this is a doing word. It's not an emotion. He calls us to take hold of a certain point of view. He says, consider, take hold of a certain way of looking at your life and looking at your circumstances. It's proactive. And the verb, it's in, it's in the aorist tense. It means, it speaks of being precise or definitive about something. So he's saying that we need to have a settled conviction as Christ followers, we need to have a settled conviction around how we see our life and how we see the trials and difficulties and complications and strains that we experience as part of life. We have to, have a, we have to settle how we think about these things. You love those, I love those words from Nightbird. You know, after hearing of a numerous cancerous growth, Simon says, so you're not okay. And she replies, well, not in every way, No. She's considered that there's more that's going on in her life than the sickness that she's facing. She's grasped and she knows that, that life is about more than one aspect of life. So James's encouragement for us in turning trials into triumphs is a joyful attitude. Not an emotion, not an emotional joy, but a settled contentment or a settled deep trust in God, in the midst of whatever we're experiencing in our lives. Actually, what James is saying to us is, guys, you're better off, better off making up your mind about this before you're in the midst of a trial. Because we all know what it's like when you're in a trial to say, oh, don't worry about it, you know, God's maturing you. <sighs> we almost need to settle this in our hearts before we even go into that trial so that we, we have that foundation, we have that base. Because once we're in it, it's just so much harder for us to hear those truths. And I have to say that, that he's not calling us to joy in the suffering or at the suffering. The trial itself is not joyful or pleasant. Look at Hebrews. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's a similar principle. James is calling us to have joy, not in the suffering, but because of what the suffering produces in us. We can find joy because of what God is doing. So please, let's, as a church family, let's not be flippant about trials and pain and difficulties and struggles and emotional complications as we live as part of this spiritual family. You know, let's just not throw words around like, hey, it's, it's okay, you know, God's growing you, toughen up. No, no, these trials are real. They're painful. 
They're unpleasant. They're tragic. They're difficult. They can take us to the end of themselves. They can make us question who we are. They can make us question our friendships and where we belong in the world. So, yeah, we take them seriously, but we don't let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side where all we can see is the pain and all we can see is the difficulty. So let me continue this thought, this flow of thought as we hit uh, the second verb, no. James 1 verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James is saying that we need to know that this is the only way to maturity. Christ follow, you need to know that this is the only way to maturity. As tough as it can be, consider it joy and go through the trial as best you can, knowing what it's going to produce in you. You know, as Christ followers, we have a confession of faith. You know, we speak with our lips. You know, I believe in God. I trust in Jesus. I believe God has the best for me. I believe God works. Until we face a trial and a test, that confession will never become a conviction. Faith needs to be tested to prove genuine and true. I was listening to an audiobook that had nothing to do with Christianity or anything, and I heard these words. It said, faith isn't faith until it's all you've got to hold on to. Now it's faith. Now it's a conviction. So he's encouraging us to take action as we revolutionize our thinking and our attitude, not only towards trials that we know are coming, but in the midst of the trials. But more than that, he's also calling us to increased expectation, spiritual expectation for what God is doing in us in the midst of a trial. Do you know that it's okay to, to in the midst of a trial, be expectant that God is doing a profound work in you? That God is galvanizing your faith? I mean, how beautiful is 1 Peter? I almost read this at our, our worship night uh, we had last week because I was burning with this text, but I held out. In this way you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may have proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor where Jesus Christ is revealed. There is nothing in your life more valuable than your faith. And when it's tested, it grows strong. And it brings glory to God. So in trials, we need to ask ourselves, you know, in the midst of a trial, do I really trust God? Do I really believe he knows best? Do I really trust that I'm going to come through this thing better than when I went into it? Here's a portion of a poem by Robert Browning Hamilton. He says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And then the final verb James gives us, in order for us to mature or grow in the midst of trials as we persevere, is persevere. Perseverance, verse 4, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Perseverance means staying power, constancy, endurance, stickability. It's a verb, again, it's a call to action. This is something that we do, we give ourselves to. One commentary beautifully describes uh, endurance as faith stretched out. Faith that has to endure over a period of time. He's speaking to our hearts as Christ follows here. 
It says, when you're facing all textures of trials, the cry of our hearts in those moments should be over time less and less erratic and less and less uh, fluctuating as over time God strengthens and purifies our faith. And then, of course, those crucial words, perseverance must finish its work. That's a caution for us. We have to endure through trials and difficulties all the way to the other side. You know, if we grow tired or weary or overwhelmed in the midst of a trial, our maturity could be halted midway. If we're too quick to escape or too quick to run away or unwilling to to work through, say, a relational complication or some difficulty uh, that's close to home, if we're not willing to walk with it, we could short-circuit our own growth as Christ followers. It's something like weight resistance training in gym, you know, struggling in the midst of difficulty, opposition, adversity. It's what develops robust, strong, and mature faith. Imagine you were working out at the gym. You know, you have to push through to see results. If every time your muscles got sore and you just put down the weights and stopped, you would never actually become stronger. You wouldn't actually gain that development that's intended for you. As I was writing this, I thought of moms. I've been chatting to Rosina lately, and gee, they've been through, I don't know where you are, Z, but I'm sure you're around. Yeah, with the kids. I mean, they've been through the wars. I mean, infections and sicknesses. And Nick, you too, buddy. Moms and caregivers and dads. I mean, life can get so crazy. It's a trial. (laughs) There's so much going on, so much pressure, so much unpredictability. I mean, things are just happening, and everyone just expects you to carry on working. You know, no one cares that you didn't sleep last night. No one cares that your kid was awake all night. No one cares that there's raging temperatures. God is at work in you in the most profound ways. Endure. Persevere. Go to him. One of the questions we're going to discuss in life groups this week is, is how do we help ourselves and how do we help each other persevere? Like, what do we put in place or how do we encourage each other? What does that look like? And let's figure that out together in our life groups so that we can help each other in these difficult times. The road to maturity is long and hard. The task is unrelenting. We must endure the shock and the onset of trouble when it comes into our lives. We've got to make it through that initial knock. Then we've got to endure while it, while it persists and go on enduring till we come out the other side more mature, having grown in our faith and trust. Think of Jesus. It says, Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down on the right hand of Um, at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw things through till the end, and he's received his reward, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Well, James lets us know that there's a reward for us too. It's called maturity. It's in this process of perseverance that the end goal of maturity is opened to us. And when we persevere, God shapes us. He forms us. He makes us whole in areas where we lacked. He rounds us off where we've got sharp edges. He adds to our character where we lacked it before the trial. He burns away the impurities, leaving us with a faith more precious than gold. Maturity isn't automatic. 
you, Christ follower, have a role to play. It's a bit sobering. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, just because you've been following for a long time doesn't mean that you're maturing. And it's very possible for, for people that have been following Jesus for a lot less time than you to actually outgrow you, to actually outmature you, to actually grow, to, to, to be more Christ-like, to bring more glory to God through their life because they're surrendering to Him. Just because we've been Christ for us for a long time doesn't mean we're maturing. James wants to encourage us, guys, mature. Okay, summary and wrapping up. Quick, quick. Sometimes as Christ followers, we think that maturity is like this inward process. Like, you know, if I'm struggling with anger or I want to overcome a sin or I'm, you know, in a conversation with someone and it's not going well and there's, there's misunderstanding or the way I'm treating someone or talking to someone isn't going well, we sometimes think that, you know, we pray a prayer inside of us and, and like now we've grown or now we've overcome or now we've matured. James is blowing that kind of thinking out of the water. He's saying there's just no way. That's maybe the beginning. Maturity or becoming perfected or complete is hard fought and hard won. And it comes as we consider our trials pure joy, knowing that God is at work in us and we persevere all the way till it's finished. Let me pray for us. Guys can make your way onto the stage. Why don't you stand? Our Father God, we thank you for your word. What a gift. And even as we hear now, God, we want to just create a, a, a moment for everyone just to, to stop where you are and just reflect. What's God said to you? What area of your life is God speaking to you about? And as we go into this song, as we go into singing, use this time to either sing along or just to reflect and to pray and to, to strengthen yourself, to respond, to surrender to the authority of God's word over your life. So lead us in a song as we do that. Thanks, guys. If you're the throne.